Hello and welcome to another episode of the Back Porch Stories podcast with Chuck Stead. If you're enjoying these stories, don't forget to click the follow or subscribe or like button and please share these stories with your family and friends. Now, immediately following the story, as you know, we like to have a little chat, so it'll be myself, Scott Lewis again, and also Chuck Stead, and we'll talk a little bit about the stories behind the stories, and some of Chuck's thoughts about the people, the places, the things, and the times in which these stories take place. So, we'll be adding a new backstory every week on Friday morning, so please keep coming back. Thanks for listening, and here now is Chuck Stead. That's great. Thank you. That's great. That's that. Now I want to sit and listen. <laughs> That's good. Me too. Yeah. So uh, this next episode is called Second Street. I sat on the front porch of the house on Second Street. I was up on a little sitting bench along the side rail and staring across to the other side of the porch, some maybe 10 feet away, at another little sitting bench along another little side rail. There was a single railing that divided our side from the other side. It looked much the same over there, but a different family lived there. This explained why we didn't have any windows on our side of the house. There was one wall that didn't have any windows. Well, that's because that's where the houses were divided. I hadn't yet discovered that the other family was related to us. Aunt Dot, Uncle Inky, and the kids. And for that matter, the most of Second Street was related to us. No, in those early mornings of my life, Sitting there on the porch, waiting for heebie-jeebies daily visit, I was perfectly ignorant as to the particulars of the society that was around me. I didn't know that ours was one of the original 13 two-family houses built in a little clearing for the workers in the Ramapo foundry. These houses were first put up some 83 years earlier. A big barrel chest of a man, who I would come to know as Uncle Mal, used to stand at the base of the wooden front steps and talk about how another man, William Snow, built our houses. Knowing the fate of snowmen at the time, I figured our house would eventually melt. Uncle Mal talked a good deal about the history of things. Up and down the street he lectured, argued, told stories, and held court. As my mother would say, she would say, he's holding court. Often across the way, on Hunter's front porch, a group would gather come evening time, and Mal's voice would be heard above the others either carrying on about the New York State Thruway or dropping off into a sudden determined low murmur so that he could share a story not meant for the ears of children. Such a story would end with a burst of collected laughter, and then Aunt Evelyn droned them all out saying, Oh my God! As summer rolled in, the front porches of Second Street were inhabited just after supper. Kids fell into the street, tossed a ball around, played hula hoop, or raced bright-colored bicycles, their chrome fenders wobbling fiercely as they pounded over the cracked concrete and the walks that were rippled by the constant pressure of slow-moving root beds from the aging maple trees that lined the street. Across at Hunter's porch, Flo sat listening to Aunt Vera, who talked loudly about summer vacations. Hunter stood in the little patch of his front yard, cigar sending up a slow and steady curl of smoke from his right hand. At the next house over, Uncle Mal stepped out and down the broad concrete landing of his front porch, and after running his right hand over his thinly trimmed baby-fine hair, he turned to the wide concrete steps. He ambled across them, and to my eyes, even then, he seemed like sort of the chief of Second Street, the chief of the Second Street tribe, 
In our house was a picture book. There were totem poles in the book. And I tried to imagine Uncle Mal's face on top of one of those totem poles. He was tall, broad, thick-chested, but his legs were narrow and lean. Stead legs, Tessie used to call them. Steads have stead legs. She would curl her lip in disdain. His arms were long and were in constant use in front of him when he spoke, with his delicate white hands dancing about. He often complained he had woman's hands. They were soft and smooth, and as he put it, they were tender as a baby's butt. His hair was light-colored, with streaks of white, not gray, running through it. He had a a sharp, beak-like nose. His face drew in all around it, and altogether Uncle Mal was a presence that demanded attention. And he was always talking. The next house down was where Flip Matoski sat. He was a lean, well-built man who sat on his front porch with his elbows on his knees, his forearms stretched out so that his hands were almost touching. There was a cigarette between the fingers of his right hand. Beyond his house was Uncle Dutchie's house, and beyond that was, well, the throughway. The throughway was the biggest thing in Hilburn. Only the mountains of Ramapo were bigger than that. To me, the throughway was as much a part of our lives as Flip's dog. The dog's name was Tramp. But to the elders there, there was a time before the throughway, and much of what interested them was about that time. Some years later, when I was more of a grown boy, Flip told me that when he was in the army, he used to dream about the shrill, far-off steam engine cry of the eerie Lackawanna coming up through the valley. He said it was the only thing that kept him going. That lonesome railroad cry would warm his frozen fingers hunkered down in a trench eating K-rations. That was what he longed to return to, and often I saw him on his front steps, before his after-supper smoke, listening to the rhythm of the throughway traffic and looking in that direction. From around the top of 2nd Street, Grandma came walking, followed by Heebie-Jeebie, Now, she was about his size and had similar thickness in the middle. Her hair was white, drawn into a little bun pinned at the back of her head. She was always well-groomed. She wore a cotton dress with a fine blue print, which folded in and out as she walked. I sat on the porch, holding the wheel of a toy truck close to my face. I positioned the wheel until I could focus on my grandparents framed just inside it. I studied their movement. She walked one step ahead of him her lips moving gently over the words that she spoke to him. I thought perhaps these were the things that were said in secret by old people. He shuffled it along behind her. He bit off his words, sometimes staring down at her legs and nodding. They walked up to where Hunter stood. I found that if I turned the wheel, I could remove one of them and then only see two of them, and then I could turn it back again. I could kind of be in charge of the picture. Hey, what are you doing? I looked up, and there stood Joan. She was my sister, the tallest of my sisters. She's the broadest of them. She has really wide shoulders. Her face was full and clear. Her lower lip turned out just so. I could see there was a little bit of wetness on it. I rolled off the porch and banged my head against the door. Oh, poor little thing, she said. She squat down, and she uprighted me. Always banging that head of yours into something. Well, what's the matter? Uncle Mal ambled across the street. He knock a hole in the door with that damn big head of hisens. She inspected me for bruises. I heard your sister Terry dropped him last week on her foot, and Walt had to take her for x-rays. Joan returned me to the bench. I dropped my wheel, 
It bounced down the steps to where Uncle Mal, in a great sweeping gesture, he caught it, he retrieved it. He turned it over in his clean white fingers and said something about needing new tires. The sound of Hunter's laugh across the street called his attention. He looked at the three of them out there and he shouted, Don't let that old liar fill you with garbage now. Hunter, don't let him do that. Joan shook her head. Uncle Mal tossed her the toy and quickly she snatched it out of the air. He grinned and turned back to cross the street. You okay? she asked me. Her eyes were big and brown and full of light. I nodded. She straightened up quickly, hearing Tessie call to her. She bounded off the porch and onto her blue English racer. She threw a leg over one side. It looked so much like there was wind in her face. She just sailed down the street, and then she was gone, just as Tessie came out. My mother's face, from the earliest time that I can recall, was always quick and hard before it crossed into a smile. She looked down the street and then to me. Who was that? Who was that? Was, was that Joan? I nodded slowly. She looked again down the street. Can't say that I expect much from my kids. She looked at me and noticed something against my head. You, did you bang your head again? I nodded again, and Mal shouted from across the street. Put a dent in your front door, Tessie, with that head of hisins. Tessie waved at him. She smiled, and she said low, jackass. She walked back into the house. As the screen door slammed, the next door on the other side swung open. Uncle Linky, a stout, round-shouldered, sharp-faced man with jet-black eyebrows. Below a regulation crew cut, he stepped out. Uncle Linky shot a look across the street and shouted, Hey, Pop, you seen Ted Mack the other night? They had a fellow there. Looked a lot like Fagin. Could blow some kind of symphony out of a Jew's harp. Ebgb shook his head. Uncle Mal shouted, Fagin ain't got the pucker to hold on to a Jew's harp. Linky turned to me and said, Hey there, boy. Before I could answer, he dropped down off the porch and walked across the street. Much of what happened from my perch on the front porch involved a lot of adults, the grown-ups, moving around. They called to each other, they laughed, they smoked, they drank pop and beer, and sometimes come evening, I heard some of them cry. Our side of the street faced north, so there was never much sun on the porch. Early and late in the day, sunlight slipped in at steep angles and cast long, crooked shadows that dropped over my white legs and down off the porch. After winter, the street was scented with maple, dogwood, and the thick, moist taste of green mud. Come summer, the air was drenched with sweet rose, charcoal barbecue, and mosquito spray. The fall was mostly the smoke of burning leaves, and in winter, the cold air tasted like, well, like salt, the salt from the street. These were the smells of seasons which came and went and reminded you of something from last year. And there were other kinds, many kinds of smells that carried on through the year, like the smoking, all kinds of smoking, pipe tobacco, sweet and fruity, or sharp and sour, cigarettes that clung their scent like perfume and curled your nose, or cigars that sunk deep into your throat and coated your tongue like an old sock. It seemed everybody smoked something, and everybody smelled different. Mostly the men smelled of tobacco, beer, and sweat. The women were confusing, though. They smelled of perfumes, powders, oils, and sprays. I sneezed on them a lot. Heebie-jeebie came across the street slowly. He looked up the three steps of the porch. He drew in his breath. He sighed heavily. He was tired. He was tired of getting tired. He mounted the first step, then turned and lowered himself to the floor. 
He was now sitting on our side of the porch with his back to me. I could see his baby fine neck hairs curled up over the back of his white wool shirt. He, he looked to the others who were all talking excitedly about something, and then I heard his voice, a soft slip of gravel. Sometimes, too much talking. The porch door opened and Tessie stepped out. Pop, you need something? No. She looked out across at Flo and Hunters. I looked at her face. She was the mom. She was mostly in charge of things in the house. She smelled like Chesterfield Kings and Avon Cosmetics, and her nails were frosted in a faint pink color. She had a firm, flat mouth that could pull back into thin lips and drawn down like a straight line right below her nose, or open wide and reveal her round teeth in a smile. I never knew when either of these things would happen. When she wasn't talking, she was moving about quickly. But sometimes she would stand perfectly still, as she did now, partway out of the front door, watching the others. Hebe said, Woman, you want something? She looked down at his back. No, Pop, no, I don't want anything. Just if you're going to sit here, keep an eye on Chucky. She went into the house. Hebe pushed himself back against the porch floor and up against the screen door. You know, women are funny, he looked at me his face carved in cracked red leather, his mustache a yellow brush that moved with his words. Don't know what they want, but know that they want it. The smell of him rose up to me. The tobacco, the dust of an old man, the hint of chocolate. His smell was reassuring, safe. I waited for a story, but we were out on the front porch watching the others. He was quiet. His breathing was low and raspy. Then a loud, rattling sound drew up from the throughway. It was a, a flatbed, 18-wheeler, rumbling along empty. He looked down 2nd Street, snorted. Some moisture dropped off his mustache. He wiped it away with his sleeve. Damn old throughway. Just like what Mal said. Done dropped right out of the sky and landed flat on top of us. Where in the hell do all those people go in such a fire-up hurry? Used to be. Used to be. Could just walk right on down out to the river, take off your shoes, and step in. Used to be pretty nice. Can't even expect things to stay the same ever. Have it when you can, boy. Because next time you know, none of it will be there to have. He looked out across the street. See that old woman there? Your grandma? You see her? I love that woman. She, she looks the sweet, darling little thing, don't she? But Lord... Don't you ever cross her. When, when one time, Johnny and Walt, you know the boys, I, I mean your uncle and your dad, when, when they got into a fight one time and busted up some of her china, that old woman took a frying pan to them, knocked the hell out of them, she did. He looked at me. Do you understand me, boy? Are you listening inside that head of yours? I don't figure you for some damn idiot, but you sure don't seem too sharp, neither course can't say that i blame you for not blabbering like most folks just remember some of us just ain't as dumb as we make out to be you, you get me boy now aunt dot stepped out of her side of the house she was dark-haired round-faced woman she had sharp eyebrows and red lipstick she had a quick laugh and was always ready to talk her boy closest to my age was tadpole his real name was tommy he was a bit smaller than me well i mean mostly headwise 
and although they lived on the other side of the wall, I hadn't yet gotten to know them much. Dot looked down at us and said, Hello, Pop. You, you talking to Chucky there? We'll say hello to the boy too, why don't you? He knows I mean it. Not if you don't say it, woman. She looked at me. Hello, Chucky. I said nothing. Now look at that. Doesn't this little boy ever want to talk to anybody? Talks to me. Well, I don't know about that, she said, as she sat on her side of the porch. He just talks when he needs to. She made a little sound and said, When someone addresses you, it's your business to return it. No one's dressing me. Oh, honest to God, Pop. By now I had fallen asleep. I had this ability to be able to nod off regardless of the occasion. The afternoon sun rolled in along the street with a dusty haze that warmed everything up. I slipped away to the sound of voices and the distant murmur of the New York State Thruway. And now a brief pause for a message from our favorite sponsor, Montgomery Book Exchange. You know, downtown New York, there was a legendary area called Book Row, where there was a whole community of bookstores. I believe that strand is the only one of them left. Yeah, kind of makes you think. Kind of makes me think I want to go to a used bookstore and get lost in the stacks. And that's just what you can do at the Montgomery Book Exchange in Montgomery, New York. Hey, we've been talking about that place for a while, and I haven't been there yet. Well, they are open Tuesday through Thursday, 10 to 4, Friday, 10 to 6, Saturday, 10 to 4, and Sunday, 12 to 4. And what about their Facebook book auctions on Thursday nights? Yeah, well, they're looking to start that up again about mid-September. It's called 20 for 20. You pay $20 for a bag of books that they show you, and they auction off on the night, oh, maybe 20 bags. It's fun at the Montgomery Book Exchange. Look them up online or call them at 845-764-1787. That's the Montgomery Book Exchange. Check them out at montgomerybookexchange.com. I love it. (laughs) That's great, man. It's so great. Yeah. It's like a slice of real life. You can just, you paint the whole picture. You can see everything that's going on and the things that people are saying and thinking and their styles and their rhythms. And that's one of the things I think in the art of storytelling and certainly in yours that really stands out. You can shift from rhythm to rhythm, person to person, fairly effortlessly. You remember all of those rhythms. You remember the urgency of your aunt and the sort of chill and sit back and just settle down of pop's dad and the resistance almost of your mother to to all of this as she kind of viewed it and maybe wasn't so comfortable in this environment and i just think it's a it's a great great talent great gift. thanks thanks yeah. that's that's good great. i i actually it's funny when you say i remember the uh the urgency the style i probably remember that a lot better than i remember the words hmm. so 
in in just writing these things, I I have to think a lot about the feeling of these people to make sure I don't put words into their mouth, but you know, they get to say the words that they say. In addition to the the char- individual character painting, though, you have a way of putting the scene, the the set, almost in relief of what the action is going to be. And the, from right out of the gate in this story, you talk about after dinner, people start coming out on the porch, and the kids come out into the street. And yeah. my wife and I have always commented how quiet our na- we live in a really nice residential neighborhood, even. During, you know, the summers, um, in normal years, during COVID, when everybody was home, nobody was playing on the street. The kids do not play on the streets. And just that beginning of the scene, just setting after dinner, that hour or so before you start getting thinking about getting the kids ready for bed or whatever, in a you know, summer night or whatever, just the sense of community where everyone is coming out, seeing who's at their porch. You might call across the street or go and visit somebody. And the kids are all just automatically congregating outside. And it's not like you're planning a game or anything. It just things happen when you have, you're all together. Yeah. Scott, that's so true. When we lived in Paramus, there were a lot of us, you know, I'm the oldest boy of 11 children. So we had connections to every house in the street. But they were outside until it either got dark or their mothers started to call them in. We were all outside. And then, of course, we brought our parents outside onto the front porches, onto the street for walks and things like that. And then, you know, we'd walk two or three houses and mom would stop and Talk to Mrs. Pitt or Mrs. Blacksburg or Mrs. Kuhn or Mrs. Friedman, you know, and and there was this constant connection and community that we have lost. And it's really unfortunate because it was such a different world. I tell my kids sometimes, everybody's inside now. We had three channels back then. And if you were lucky, <laughs> one of them might have something. That- and they signed <laughs> off at night, remember? Right, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> They signed off at night. They, you, they, then you saw the uh, Native American head and the test pattern on the screen. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and right. that was it, you know, or you'd have the Star Spangled Banner, which would close the day for the network. Yeah. But that was it. Three three networks, and, you know, kids weren't interested in watching the news or anything back, you know, when they were little. And, and you had uh, no video games and no cell phones and nothing of that nature. So what else would you do? Of course you went outside, played kick the can, you know, or hide and seek or cowboys and Indians, anything. And it was great. Oh, man. Well, I think it also added to your imagination because you had to make things up on the spot and you had to critically think all the things that we are constantly trying to imbue in our kids now. It just happened because of the nature of the interactions you had yeah and now you have to kind of force it because we're not having that communal system to generate that kind of well true community is organic and and what we do now in part because we have such a mobile economy is we we add water and create a community instant community and and you can't do that you can do that and make a house in a neighborhood but it's not necessarily neighborly. It's a house. And, and just the construct of privacy fences, which is something that emerged pretty much in the 
late 60s, early 70s, and we've had them ever since. Uh, that obsession with privacy. A community, I mean, what the hell are you putting a fence up for? I'm your neighbor, you know? It, yeah. That was a whole, it's, it's so, in, with my undergrads, when I describe that, they're sure I'm making it up. It's that foreign to them. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. You might have seen a split rail fence once in a while, right. but you sure didn't see a fence that separated you from the neighbor. Yep. Because you talked with them all the time. Yep. You wouldn't think of putting it. It would be an insult. You know, you'd be saying, you know, I really don't want to see you. You know, And your neighbor would say, what are you hiding over there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. But that also comes out because your, I mean, how long had, had your family owned that property and your neighbor's family owned that property? That would have... That was more like a European thing where right. you're, you know, you have roots that go back generations. And now, and it's been for a while, you know, once the kids grow up, the assumption is they're going to move somewhere else and start over, yeah. start from scratch. Sure. Right, right. Well, that's that whole mobility in the economy now. They have to, they have to go somewhere else. They have to do something else. And that's because we're not in charge of it. Others are in charge of it. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to get, you know, if we're going to sustain, we need to follow their their course of where they want us to do things and that's we need to get in charge of it well i think what's going to be interesting and it's really starting now i'm seeing more kids who get their college degrees or whatever they're doing and they can't afford to start over and they're coming back and living in their old bedrooms mm -hmm. and even my next door neighbor he has two daughters both of them and one significant other are now piled into this little house yeah. and i think that's happening all over the place because of the way the economy is and so maybe projecting another you know 10 15 years out maybe we're going to start seeing a community of long time residents because maybe. people can't move around because they'll be yeah they'll, they'll they'll lose that option well our parents joe's and mine uh of course were young people in the great depression and in the Depression, you also didn't have that uh, flexibility or that, that necessarily that, that need to move on. So it wasn't at all uncommon to have grown children living with parents and carrying on supporting the household. Mm -hmm. And only when they got married did they move away. And then it wasn't very far like our folks. It wasn't all that far from the homestead because they're still plugged into that sensibility of the, the core of homestead community, whatever whatever is the, the family house. Right, why would you move away from everyone you know? Yeah, that's why it was so startling in an earlier story to my, well, we're getting to it now, but my, my grandparents when they were shipped off to uh, uh, Florida um, because television convinced my, my aunts and uncles, well, you know, that's where you go when you get old. Now, that hadn't happened yet, but it was happening now because television was telling them that, and there was great real estate opportunities in Florida, and uh, that's where we're going to stockpile our aged. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and it separates, it's, well, we'll get that into another story, but it, it's so important that you, you, the generations keep the connection because that's basically their identity. It's a whole different world now. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah, yeah. And, and it was, I think, a more creative world back then for kids. We had these things called ghost shows in each other's basements. 
in these little houses. We tie a piece of linen to a piece of string and hook it up over a beam in the unfinished basement. Then we turn off all the lights and we pull the strings and the ghosts would dance around and the kids, you know, you'd have to march through and it cost you a nickel, you know, to go through the ghost show and lemonade stands and things like that. It was... uh, and I think children, great. Can, children uh, left to their to their own imagination, naturally fall into that direction. Yeah. It's just that we we compound them with all of these technical wonders so early in the game. We well, and then we overschedule them yeah. with with going to soccer and karate and ballet, yeah. and you know, it, it just there's not a second yep. to think. We had a we had a toy box, an old toy box, and Ricky Cramshaw and I would climb into it and close the lid so we were in complete darkness, and it was a time machine. And when you open the lid, it may look the same, but it's a different time. Oh. And then we had to act out the different time that it was. That's cool. And we would go That's downstairs great. and get a, a chocolate chip cookie and go, they don't taste the way they used to. <laughs> Something's changed. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, it was... It was a great time. It was a creative time, sometimes even a little scary. That having been said, just to keep, I always try to keep an eye on the clock because mm-hmm. I know our listeners are busy people yep. too. Um, let's move on. What will be the uh, name of the next story? The next episode is Christmas 56. All right. You've been listening to Backboard Stories with Chuck Stead. We'll see you next week. listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stett. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning at 9 a.m., so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story. <laughs>